You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to episode 55 of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. And on this week's show, we've got the legend that is Mick Bet, the first player from England to represent his country both as a player and a coach, but not only that, had a very successful career uh, playing for Crystal Palace, Thames Valley and then Kingston and Hemel before hanging them up and taking over the reins of Ware as a coach um, before then actually getting into the pros and winning uh, back-to-back Coach of the Year awards uh, in his first two years coaching in the pros. So a super illustrious career, but not just that, he's actually um, a commentator now. Uh, you might hear him regularly uh, doing GB games amongst other things. Uh, uh, but has kept himself involved uh, and abreast of what's going on with British basketball. So he's got a lot of opinions about various different things, which we've got into uh, on this week's show. I do want to say and give you a warning. This is the worst internet I've had uh, since doing these things. And uh, it, we struggled at times. We had to stop recording, uh, restarting. I've done my best to edit it slightly um, and remove parts that were completely inaudible uh, but you will pick up on that and it's something that I'm going to try and get sorted out uh, as we move forward recording these episodes weekly so I just do want to give you a head up heads up I'm aware of it and I'm trying to fix it so please bear with me as always before we get into the show please check out our patreon account patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash h-o-o-p-s-f-i-x there you can sign up to give us a monthly con- contribution of as much as you, or as little as you'd like to help us do the work that we do uh, we cannot do it without your support so please go and check out our patreon patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix as always please take two seconds to give us a rating and review on itunes if that's where you're listening if you're watching on youtube give us a like and subscribe or leave a comment uh, down below uh, and then finally uh, if you do want to reach out to me personally to give me any feedback I'd love to hear from you drop me an email sam at hoopsfix.com and I reply to every single one anyway that is enough from me here is this week's episode with me and Mick Bett Mickey welcome to the show thank you Sam how you doing you okay yeah, yeah. last time we met was in Argentina wasn't it face to face I think it may well have been, yeah. Um, I, I went home with a cough. I think Jeff Taylor ended up with bed bugs, freezing gym. I think yeah. the, uh, the the trip to the gym was through uh, through a really shady district. Apart from that, the trip was all right. Yeah. <laughs> that was um, that was definitely one of the coldest gyms that I've been in uh, for sure. It was it was long, oh, yeah. long, long working days. Um, so yeah, thanks thanks for joining us. Well, there's there's a bunch of stuff to get into. Uh, you know, I really want to focus on kind of your playing, coaching, career, you've obviously done a lot, um, and the place I always start is right at the beginning, so kind of the, the, the early the early days, and what made you first get into basketball, how did you end up putting a ball in your hand in the first place? Um, it's a good question, I think, and everybody will have the, pretty much the same answer, you, you went to a school where somebody at the school had an interest in basketball, because everything was football, cricket, and then uh, I went to Woodcote School in Purley, just south of Croydon. And bizarrely enough, there was a geography teacher there that was was attached to the Crystal Palace team. Um, I don't, we never found out what his attachment was, but I never saw him in any rosters. But he he knew people, and he and he and he got the team going at Woodcote. That fed into Pearly uh, Pearly Boys School for Boys, um, and we were in Surrey, south of Croydon. And we were, you know, there was other teams around like Glynn High School with Stimpson was there. Uh, but there was a big tradition at Purley for basketball, and and that was great. And it was um, it just followed on one from another. So, what age were you at, at that point when you first got into it? Twelve. 
12 at Woodcote, and then they had a team for three years. And then at, at age 14, they shifted you up to Pearly Boys for the O-level years and A-level years. And um, around about my fifth year, which is like grade 10 or year 11 now, um, one of the older boys, Richard Rudd, um, just got me by the scruff of the neck and said, listen, you've got to practice. So we practiced every lunchtime. We worked on shooting. Um, you know, just pr the idea of just getting in the gym every lunchtime and just working with a ball. And that year, we played Glynn High School in the Surrey Cup final. Now, you've got to remember now, now that I'm now to Paul Stimson. So Stimson played at Glynn. And Stimson was the under-17 England player, or under-16, whatever it was. And, and he came to the gym, and the older boys were playing. I sat there with my bag of crisps half court and I'm just watching this guy watching Stimson play and I'm thinking you know I got to get there I got that's that's where I want to be I'm watching how he shoots I went away the next day and tried to and I'm only a year younger than Paul but I'm not that nowhere near that level and at, by the end of that year great year 11 year or grade 10 back then fifth fifth form we played them in the Surrey Cup final and I progressed and it was like April time it was late in the school year but the, the final had to be played we went down to my old school Woodcote to play the game and my assignment, bizarrely enough, was marking Paul. And we had no coaching about how to play defense, but the, the older players were guiding us through it. And, um, yeah, it was interesting. Guarding Paul, Paul must have had 24 points that day. But it was just an experienced guy and seeing him get a little frustrated because somebody wanted to get very close to him. Um, and that defined it really for me. That was the big changing point because I scored 15 points in the game. We win it by two, three points. Richie Rudd has his usual great game. Uh, Richie was a great high school player um and then it, it then it led into crystal palace so then that summer i wanted more of this i wanted to be um follow the route that everybody was taking which was through the crystal palace juniors and uh and that was about it played under 17 the first year i uh, was captain of that team under harry baker harry ran the under 17 team and then roy ran the under 19 team so back then the juniors were split under 19 was your limit and 17s was the next limit because it all followed the international selection. So uh, there was an under-19 European Championship and under-17 European Championship. In, in terms of in terms of uh, time scales, are we th this is what in the late 70s. So 1977, I went for a Surrey trial. I think in May 19, whatever it was, 76, I think it was, and didn't get in. I always tell the story. I didn't get into the Surrey team, but three months later, I was in the England team. <laughs> Um, so I made the England team before I made the Surrey team. But it was that that level of progress was being made. Once you went to Crystal Palace and went through that training with um, like a real military-style training, I mean, it was, you know, you did as you – nobody spoke out. And, it, and it, it grounded a lot of kids back then into who they became in, in their lives, right? It, it really took a lot of kids that might have been on wayward paths. I mean, I wasn't on a wayward path, but I needed that discipline. I needed to be shown how sport – you could align sport and your in, internal aggression to the same to the same point and get and get good results. In, ter um, in terms of your aspirations, like was it just to be like at that point? Was it just to be as good as as Paul, or was it kind of like you were looking at the national league and thinking that you wanted to turn pro, or, or kind of what were you thinking in terms of your motivation uh, and where you wanted to get to? I don't think the, it, it it didn't go any further than the fact that you had a sport that you wanted to be better than somebody else. Um, and, you know, when, when I played cricket, the same thing. I just just went back and practiced, practiced, practiced cricket until I was better than somebody else. 
and then there's somebody else that wasn't it was better than you so you just went a bit further and bass was the same thing you know there was there was your friends that could do things okay i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna be better than you i want to be do that better than you um and and you speak to all those guys coming through you know and 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 steve Butler will tell you the same stories joel moore will tell you the same stories they all wanted to be better than the person they were standing next to because at the end of the day you're the best because there's nobody left to stand next to and 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 i never got close to that but that was my drive right i wanted to be better i wanted to be as good as paul i wanted to be as good as richie rudd these these older players that were ahead of me so it wasn't there was no real end game to play national league and, until it got to about two years later in that and then you could see a pathway into the into the um the men's leagues how how did how did you see that pathway? How did that become how did that become clear to you that that all of a sudden you know this could be a thing where that you could pursue, like that? Yeah, it came it came without even being knowing about it. So when you went into the under 17s at Crystal Palace, you played. Um, there was no under 17 league, so there's no league we went into our own age group. So we went into the London league, and I remember seeing a um, a podcast you did with Mark Dunning, and Mark Dunning tried to describe the London league back then. And it was a rough, tough league. There must've been 10 teams in the league. So we were under 17s at Palace. The under 19 Falcons were in there. So we were playing against our own under 19 team in the league. And then you'd play, so Dave Titmus had his team out in Hemel Hempstead, the Hemel Hempstead Lakers. And uh, there was teams that were dotted. There were some really cut your teeth on that that type of competition, you know, because they, they weren't gonna lose to kids. Um, they they did not want to lose the kids for sure. So you go to places in the middle of London on a Wednesday or Tuesday night where it's like this is a bit shady right here, right? But it was just it was just fun. We just played as hard as we could. We ended up winning about three or four games that year. Um, so we took some scouts as under 17s, and then when we went into the Falcons the year after, we were it was a different story. We 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 played some really competitive games. When um, interestingly, like when you talk about um, sort of. You know, wanting to be better than Paul, Paul, wanting to be better than the the person that's next to you. Uh, you know, for me growing up, it was a very similar thing where I wasn't looking to anything wider than my local area growing up. And there were players in that area that were a few years older that was like, he's amazing, I want to be as good as him. So, you know, when people talk about the need for elite British talent, guys to be at the top to inspire the younger generation, do you actually think it's more a case of, um, well, actually, we just need the level to be better in local communities for kids coming through so they can see talented players in their local area. Yeah. I mean, look, you look at the pathway, right? There is no, I mean, local basketball exists maybe in the schools, but the club basketball, as soon as you get into club basketball, you're, you're, you're on the national stage, right? Because you go into a national league. Now, whether it's conference and that conference is in your area, um, but sometimes those teams are outside your area by a long way, right? If you're, you're, out in the uh, out in Somerset and, and those places, then you have to travel. They have to put them in a conference somewhere. So you're immediately experienced the stuff that's outside your area, and I I I, I, I don't see a problem with that. I think that's uh, that's always the way national leagues grown up, and and I think once you get into club basketball, then it exposes you to a hot, wide range of uh, uh, of players that are not necessarily local to you. So you you ended up eventually like. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to skip over things, but I know you ended up going to a university in the states, right? But you also did university in the UK for a little bit as well. So, uh, kind of, what was the the mixture between the two, and how did yeah. that sort of end up happening? So, the, so my ambition was always to go to the states. That was from about eighteen, nineteen, 
and, and the reason was, um, and it's interesting because um, there's an article on Basketball England right now about finding views about a pathway for kids at 18 and 19. You know, is it the States? Is it going to stay at home? Well, you know, the migration to America has been going for 40 years. So Martin Clark was the first prominent player to set sail and, and end up in high school in America. So he, he did three years, I think, at Don Bosco High School in, in Boston and then went to play to Boston College for four years. So that was a pathway that was for success for him. And when, because Martin was a year younger than me, but on the Crystal Palace team, it was a pathway that that's what I want to do. I want to go and the only way I can be best, the best is by going abroad and going to America. So it, it never happened, you know, so nobody really, I didn't get enough exposure. I went to a couple of camps and it needed money. There was nobody going to offer me a free scholarship. Uh, it needed a bit of money and my, and my parents weren't going to pay for me to go to America, university in America when it was free in England. So I ended up going to Borough Road um, and St Paul Stimson was there, uh, and it was a sports university. So we were surrounded by people, internationals at all, all different sports. Um, and then my final year of university, I got Danny Palmer was coach at Crystal Palace and said, Mickey, you want to go to the States for a year? Well, I could have gone for four years, but I was like 22, 23 years of age. So I went for one year, tried it and the standard was, was good, but it was no better than what I was getting back in the national league. So I came home and, um, so by the time I'd left, Danny Palmer was coach. By the time I come back, Danny Palmer was not the coach. So Crystal Palace, uh, I didn't I just wanted to play, so it didn't really matter. And, and my allegiance was with Crystal Palace, so I, play, I played with them. Did you? Was that disappointment for you that getting to the states? You know, you you always had aspirations to go to the states, and then kind of when you finally got there, it actually wasn't quite what you thought it was going to be, or quite what you expected it to be in terms of the level. Yeah, that's a good a good conversation too because there was three of us went that year. There was uh, Joe White went to Los Angeles. Um, Joel Moore, I think he went to Idaho to begin with. Then he migrated. He didn't like Idaho, and and I went to Maine. All right, so my coach sits me down for we had dinner when I first arrived, and he, and I'm telling this story about how the other two have gone to L.A. and Idaho, and Coach Casey turns to me and says, "Wow, your coach must not have liked you then." <laughs> sending you to Maine because it was like an NAI school. So it wasn't really, and I'm going there and, I, and the first semester I'm playing the five position. I'm playing the position, which I didn't mind. I, I love playing anywhere. I didn't care. But, you know, Danny had me playing point guard or two guard or three guard. I could play many positions. So I'm going from a pro league in England where I was playing one, two, three, and I'm in the middle of Maine, the middle of nowhere, playing the five position. And, so I could see straight straight away it wasn't really the place for me. But I made a commitment and I, I enjoyed the lifestyle. It was good and made a lot of friends, that's for sure. So you came back to the UK. Uh, kind of talk about the landscape of the, the National League back then, kind of who the big the big players were, the big teams were, kind of what the perception of the league was, kind of what, what it was like culturally, I guess, um, just to sort of overview, I guess, for people that, that weren't around you at those times. So... If you go back before I went to the States, the Crystal Palace team was a, a dynasty, you know, and the whole league was getting incredible prominence. Um, the channel was just TV. You know, people have come on here and talked about how the impact that had on, on basketball for sure. And um, and that in itself was, was interesting because you created heroes. Television will create heroes for you. And then when you have the heroes within that within that sport, you have a following. 
and all sorts of heroes were being formed in the early 80s. You know, for, for the biggest hero for us was Alton Bird. Alton Bird came to Crystal Palace in 1979, stayed three years. Danny Palmer's, uh, he had Vic Tinsley for two years as head coach and then Danny Palmer for one. I mean, Bird changed the whole face of English basketball. You know, when you talk about the best player, if you're not talking about Alton Bird, then you, then you haven't seen enough basketball. I mean, he literally changed the way – he changed the way Paul played, for sure. You know, Stimson was uh, – uh, you know, Paul's a – Paul and Alton be right up there. Paul's first guy to 100 caps, Alton changing the face of, of basketball. But, you know, um, Paul made Alt, – uh, sorry, Alton made Paul what he is, which is you're a shooter. And you get the ball, you're open, you shoot the ball. That's all you have to do. None, nothing else. You don't have to penetrate. You don't have to kick, create for somebody else. I will create for you. And Alton taught people how to play roles. Um, and Alton taught, taught you to keep the eye on the ball too, uh, which seems like a stupid thing to say. But, you know, sometimes you can make cuts in basketball and, and you, you're not looking at the ball. But Alton would uh, see you cutting through the basket, underneath the basket, see you not watching, deliberately throw the ball at you just to prove a point. And I remember seeing a, have a ball whiz past my head in a game because, you know, that's how, how good Alton was, right? He could risk a bad pass. <laughs> and you knew for what it was a bad pass. It was your fault because you weren't looking at the ball. But he made very get a pass at any time. And it helped you be aware of who was open and whether you were open or not. Um, and, you know, his influence on Joel Moore, for instance, was incredible. He made Joel a, a, a truly understand the position of point guard. And if you now look at the, the I'm going to go, sorry, Sam. If you look at the, the, the level of point guard that's coming out of England juniors now, it's poor because their level of understanding the game is not there. And it needs players to go back and teach these kids how to play that position. It's such an important position on the team because if you haven't got a good point guard, you haven't got a good team. Oh, there's a few things that I don't want to go into, but I don't want to lose the, the original thread. Um, talking of Alton, so, so when you're talking about the greatest players to have played in England, do you put Alton as number one? Yeah, and, and, you know, and that's a bad decision, right? It's a bad bad question to ask because there's there's other players that you'd be pushing. He's got to be there, for sure. Um, just the impact that he had. And, you know, the, the funny story is Crystal Palace didn't want him, right? The uh, Crystal Palace man, he only found this out about a month ago. Crystal Palace management wanted a big player because I guess they figured they had uh, Stimps um, and they they could use Paul at the point guard. I, I guess that's the way they looked at it. And um, Alton was pushed by the owner, David DeBoe, um, who was um, running this uh, uh, medical research company, IMS. And it was in Europe based out of, there was an office in England. So basically DeBoe said, listen, I own this basketball club. Here's a job for you. Why don't you um, take the job and play basketball too? And so Alton was pushed on the club by DeBoe. And, <laughs> you know, one of the funny things, I said, what if that hadn't happened? You know, Alton wouldn't have come to England. Alton could have gone anywhere. And he was potentially the best player in Europe for me at that time. But looking clearly, he was. He went places and just mesmerized audiences. You know, we played in Berlin one time on a preseason tour, the legendary preseason tour. And, and Terry Doherty told me that... Um, there was fans standing applaud, applauding him when he'd make a pass. They were that enthralled by his play. You know, he would, 
he would just make a pass and, and Alton would listen to the, the, the noise in the crowd and he just played to it. He loved it. He was the ultimate showman. Um, just a great, great influence on, on English basketball. It, can't, it cannot be measured enough, for sure. So then going on to the second thing you were saying about about the, the point guard development in, in the UK, do you put that down to, you know, or the issues around it, like in terms of why we're not developing better point guards, do you think it's, it's down to, um, you know, not having sort of better players here for them to learn from, or do you put it down to coaching? Like kind of why do you think at that particular position we've been weaker? Coaching. Um, and, and if you look at the good point guards playing in the BBL, how many of them have access to the kids? Probably limited. Um, you know, how many BBL clubs run enough junior programs where the, 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 the pros can go down and, and work with the young kids? It's not much at all. Is it? I, 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 um, I watched the podcast of Levinston from Leicester Riders and the new rules you talked about at the end of that podcast where we've gone from four Americans and one European or no, three Americans and two Europeans yeah. to now four Americans and one European. And now we're going to take, now we're going to say we're still going to, we're gonna we're gonna hoist the flag for British players. That doesn't hoist any flag for British players. You know where's the where's the pathway there for the BBL players to be British players? I don't, I don't I'm having a hard time with that. That was a big opportunity there to downsize the number of American players and, and introduce more British players. What would you? Yeah, like that's I've been having a, a lot of conversations with people around that because it's like it can go both ways, right? Because there's the counter argument is that. Um, well, they're only taking a European spot, not a British player spot. So technically, you've still got all the same amount of spots for for British players. Um, but then, on the flip side of that, if they're bringing in another American, that should mean, in theory, that the level of the American is better, which means there are less minutes to go around for the British guys that are on the roster. Like, where, what sort of direction would you like to see the league go on that type of stuff? Uh, yeah, I, I think if you. <laughs> You know what, what? What's your league for? What's what's the uh, premise of the league? Is the league to put a a show on the floor that people want to come and watch and people want to get behind, and therefore there's a chance that the club survives through its um, uh, economics? Fine, then go with four Americans. But if you truly want to believe that you're a, a league to bring, promote British players, then you have to go back to two Americans. Two three Americans and or having the rules where British players are on the floor. But, you know, in some ways, maybe that's division one. Maybe division one is for the British players getting their experience. Cause remember the best British players don't play in England, do they? So they're off playing abroad. Now, how they're going to be affected by Brexit. I don't know. Well, yeah, you know, that's the interesting the rule... thing. We, we could end up in a situation where we end up with, um, where we could end up in a situation where we end up with, with a ton of Brits back home. Right. And then you've got the situation of pe people saying, well, you're not allowing me to work because you're hiring foreigners. Yeah. And that is uh, an interesting conundrum, which we haven't got around to yet. And maybe somebody has, I don't know. But uh, maybe I, I'm, I'm touching the water I shouldn't touch right there. Stay away from that. Let's get back to the 80s. Um, so yes, yeah, so you, you you were back at Crystal Palace. Kind of, what, what was your uh, progression on from there? You you stayed at the club until around eighty late eighties, was it eighty six eight around then? It was three years. Um, but see, what happened was uh, David Debeau had owned the club, um, and he was more than happy to bankroll what was going on at the club. So he had jobs for the major players. So Alton had a job. Bob Roma had a job. This is early eighties before I went to the states. Um, and, and he was bankrupt, but he, 
he died in the, um, of a heart attack, like in 80, uh, 81, 82, I think it was. So the club had Bill Sweek earmarked as head coach. Um, and Bill Sweek, as soon as he found and Bill Sweek was going to work for IMS too. Uh, he found out DeBoe died, and then he went back to his Adidas job. Now, Bill Sweek is uh, an ex-UCLA player who played with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in college, Lou Alcindor. Big-time name in Europe back then. Uh, and um, went on to coach Monaco in France after uh, he, he didn't come to Palace. But Palmer took over. Uh, and the like many clubs in the country, of having to fend for themselves without a rich owner or backer. And from then on, the finances just dwindled. And by the time I got back from the States, they'd had to sell most of the players on. So Portsmouth had just uh, sprouted up. So Palmer went off, Danny Palmer went off to Portsmouth. Dan Lloyd followed him down there. Joe White followed him down there. So a lot of the up-and-coming youngsters were gone. And then when I come back, there's all that's left is Paul's on the, Simpson's on the team, uh, Jeremich is on the team, and we had to find two Americans. And they had to find a coach. And, and Jimmy Guyman stepped in as coach. Jimmy Guyman was a player back in the 70s for Palace. Just phenomenal basketball player. Just another of these guys that could just light it up. And it's funny because that, that first year, something happened with our American recruitment. And we, we were short of an American for one day, one game. So Jimmy stepped in and played. So I don't know how old Jimmy was. But after the game, I think we won the game. But after the game, I thought, yeah, I know why you scored so many points. Because you just don't pass with the ball. <laughs> He, even as a coach, coach coming in, he was—he got a shot. He got a sniff of an open shot. He was taking it, and it's like, okay, but you know, that's fine. I'll go and rebound for you. I don't mind. I'm a team player. Um, but it was—it was funny. I said, yeah, I know how you scored so many points. Now you just—you just, you just love shooting the ball. How, how did you? How did you find it um, being coached by him? I loved it, you know, because Jimmy was intense, and and one of the things that. Um, I love about basketball is the intensity level, right? If you're not intense, then there's no place for you on a basketball court. So you, and, and it's 24 seven, right? As soon as you step on for practice, nobody's your friend. And I had to train myself, you know, when I was the early days of pallets, I had to train myself that nobody was my friend, even though everybody's a teammate and a friend of mine, but I wanted minutes of somebody else. So I had to go and prove to the coach that I was worthy of taking minutes off this guy and that guy. So I had to train myself to go into practice and just be a different person. And, and then when Jimmy came along, it, it just helped it. You know, when Jimmy, I came back from the States, I was on the starting five. And, and then it was the youngsters below us trying to get my spot. Well, I wasn't, there's no way I'm going to let anybody take my spot. You know, so every practice was, was just uh, in, in intense. You know, um, you, you had to get nasty all the time. Just, uh, just to survive, really, just to keep your spot. Who was the favorite coach? Who was your favorite coach that you ended up playing for? I, I, Danny was good. Danny was great. You know, Danny was. You know, Danny is very underestimated in terms of um, what he provided English basketball. He took a Crystal Palace team and really went back to basics. He stripped it back. Um, and I remember, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember some of the things that went on back then. But Alton was, was a big showman. Yeah look one way and pass the other. Loved it. And, and you know, like I say, he met mesmerized crowds with his ability to pass the ball. But Palmer came in his final year with Alton and he banned jump passes. So you couldn't jump in the air and pass the ball. Well, for me, right, and for Paul Stimson, these guys, okay, I'll, I'm going to do whatever you, but Alton resisted. Alton would every now and again jump in the air and make this pass. And, and in some ways, it's very difficult not to jump 
when you're making a pass because you're up, you know, your momentum's going forward anyway. But it was so funny. Every time there'd be a mistake by Alton by jumping in the air and making a mistake, Palmer would be up off the bench screaming, like, blue murder about it. But it was, he brought so many fundamental traits to that team. Um, and everybody bought in. I think, you know, he will, when, when I talk to players about those years, they are so, uh, they are, they're thought of in such a fond way. You know, the players we brought in were all team players. We battled it out every practice. Um, you had the Jeremy, you had Dan Lloyds, who were, they were determined they weren't going to give up any space to us youngsters. And, and as youngsters, we went out there and we were determined to make life as hard as they could in, in practice for them. You know, we weren't going to give up any quarter. Um, and, but Palmer brought a real fundamental side to basketball for us. And it taught me a lot of uh, how uh, basketball is fundamentally, um, uh, you have to learn the fundamentals to play the game. And that was one thing Palmer taught all of us there, was those fundamentals. And it carried through. You know, we went to the States, and the coach there was very good, fundamentally based. Jimmy was exactly the same. Jimmy really was – Jimmy was very good in the fact that he, he had this one system that we used to run time and time again. And it was, a far, it was all built off the fast break. And I had my particular left-hand lane to run and head to the right corner when I get a pass from Stimps. And I'd get the pass and give it back to uh, Bubba Jennings. With the, I don't know if you remember the name Bubba Jennings. Yeah, I remember the name. But anyway, we run the system. I'll come back to Bubba in a minute. He, he cannot be not talked about. Um, anyway, Jimmy had this system, and we'd run it to death. Uh, and when we had this team with Bubba Jennings, we were just like high-octane stuff. I mean, we'd go in at halftime with 80 points on the board. This, I remember a game against Birmingham, 80-55 up at halftime. I'm looking at the score, but I think that is just incredible. And we played Kingston one time and lost 137-133. I mean, it was just a shootout at the OK Corral. But it was initiated by the fact that we had Bubba Jennings. And uh, so it comes September, my second year with Jimmy as coach, and Jimmy's announcing, yeah, Bubba Jennings is this kid that's coming on the team. And I'm, and back then there was no internet. You couldn't go and research anything. I'm thinking, Bubba, what is it? I'm trying to have an imagery of what this kid looks like. Bubba Jennings. He's just going to, he's just had like number six in the nation at Texas tech in terms of scoring. He can shoot the lights out. And he's with the Dallas Mavericks um, winning shooting competitions. Anyway, Bubba arrives and he walks in the gym, skinniest kid you've ever seen in your life. Skinny little white kid, just six foot. If he was anything, but my word, what a player. What a play. I mean, I had this conversation with my son the other day about how shooting today is better than it was back in the I said, you're joking. You're kidding me. The skill level of, of the NBA players especially is way down on what it used to be. Really? Uh, there aren't as many good shooters around. No. I mean, there's some good shooters. But back in the day, we were getting kids like Bubba Jennings. And Bubba was a better shooter than Paul Stimson, better shooter than Pete Jeremich. And they were great shooters. Um, Jennings would pull up on a fast break one on zero and hit a three <laughs> against, against Sunderland. Away at Sunderland, he had 70 points, or 67 I think it was. He pulled up on a fast break and nailed a three-pointer. I mean, the arrogance of that. I mean, you, you don't see it. You'll see it now and again, but you won't necessarily see it go down and, and score. But but he was a phenomenal shooter. And the league was full of right? Steve Bontrager could shoot. Um all these guys I can't even remember now, but you know, because we played with Bubba, Bubba, Bubba's the one I remember. But uh, Talk, talking, of, talking of um, talented, talented players, uh, 
you know, someone who you spent a lot of time with, saw a lot of, was Steve Bucknell coming through. Um, kind of what are your memories of, of Steve as a youngster and kind of, and then what, when he went on to do what he did and play with the Lakers, uh, kind of what was the the feeling, the sentiment about it back home and what were people saying about it? Kind of, yeah, anything around that era would be super interesting to hear about. Yeah, so I think my first, I have to check with Steve, but I think that Richie Rudd used to run some training in the area. The players he, he, he got into these sessions with Steve. I think Michael Hales is another one. Anyway, Richie asked me to come along one day and just work out, do some three on three, four on four with these young kids. And I think that was my first experience with Steve, although we didn't know each other, we didn't really sort of tag on. And then Steve got into the pallet situation under Roy. And him and Joel, and it was a great era for um, for English basketball. Roy had this team that was just phenomenally talented. You know, I mean, Trevor Anderson. I uh, don't know whether you know Trevor Anderson back in the day. Trevor Anderson was just one of these kids that could just jump out of the gym. And his highlights was phenomenal. Uh, Basil Phillips, Joel, Steve Bucknell. Anyway, Buck was coming out of the juniors. And there's a, a memorable game they played at the WICB. And it goes down in history as one of the great games of junior basketball, right? So they're playing Maccabi Tel Aviv in the semi in the, the lower gym at Crystal Palace called the Boxing Gym. And it was converted into basketball. So the main arena is up top where all the, 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 uh, the senior teams are playing. And down in the Boxing Gym is this junior semifinal. And it went to double overtime against Maccabi Tel Aviv. And Maccabi Tel Aviv's coming in with this, uh, you know, they got the big pro team ahead of them that's, so these kids are on a trajectory in, in terms of big-time pros if they want to work at it. And Crystal Palace beat them in double overtime. I never got to watch the game. All I hear was the stories coming out of it. But Steve, Joel, Basil, Trevor, just going to work on these, uh, on these Israeli kids was just phenomenal. And it set the tone of true greatness for both of these guys, right? So Joel and Steve, you know, the level they achieved in terms of their own um, ability was 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 you know, to me, that was that was a big start in the, in the revolution of English basketball pulling through. He turned up at a tra- training session for the Palace team with Palmer, and he must have been, I'm guessing, 16 years of age, maybe a bit, maybe a year or 15. And he pulled this move in practice where he, he drove baseline, and and this is the senior team, right? So it's got Jeremy, it's got Lloyd, it's got um, it must have had McRae. Shuts on this team, stim. So it's a heavy loaded team, right? It's a team that beat Real Madrid that year. So we were, we were pretty good. And and Buck goes baseline and drives, and somebody must have come over to help out. And and Steve just comes up with this spin move, just out of instinct. And he spins into the middle, about eight feet from the bucket, shoots a shot, bank shot in. And I'm looking at this move, and I'm thinking, that's eh, not bad. So I'm going away. I'm going to practice this move, right? Because I was so impressed with this because I, I used to be a, a practice. I used to copy and practice, right? So I'm looking at this move. I couldn't do the move. It was, it, it, I couldn't do it with the elegance that Steve could do it with. And anyway, bizarrely enough, at the end of that practice, I'm talking with Palmer or at the end of practice and Jeremy, Pete Jeremy comes over and he says, and he's talking about Steve. Pete Jeremy says, that dude could be a high school All-American. And, and just like that, at 15, without him even going near America, Jeremich comes out with a statement and says, that dude could be a, a high school All-American. And, of course, that was – I didn't see Steve for a long time after that because he went off to the States, Governor Dummer, Governor Dummer Academy in, uh, in Massachusetts near Boston, and that was arranged by Roy. I think he stayed there three years, 
and 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 he I'd see him now and again coming back in the summers and he'd tell me the stories about in high school games in America where he, you you wouldn't get a double team he'd get triple teamed and I'm thinking how the hell does that work how bad how bad were your teammates that you'll get triple teamed and nobody else gets, nobody else gets open but yeah he had some he had some uh, great stories to tell and I, and I just love to listen to him you know just love to listen to what he was experiencing out there um, so so when he when he actually made the NBA, how much of a big deal was that for everybody back home um, to hear that there was a, you know, an English guy suiting up uh, in the best league in the world? Yeah, and, and but you know, back back then, Sam, it was, the exposure wasn't much, right? You couldn't get it on TV as much. There was, you know, no, the, the media wasn't carrying it, so they weren't like, we were honing in on, on but, and, and I don't think Steve played much either. You know, so that was the other thing. So he wasn't really getting a lot of court time, but I think the story of how he got there is 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 the best one because Steve comes out of Carolina. I think he averaged double figures his senior year, um, but had a great career, right? He was the defensive because that's what he wanted. Or he was the one that was going to work. And if you know Steve, and if you played against Steve, Steve's going to just battle you all the way. I think when Palmer took him to Germany as a pro, it's like the foreigner. Palmer's words to me were that I need somebody who's going to bully somebody else around. And Steve was very good at that. Steve was very good at, at asserting his dominance over the opposition. So when you go to Carolina and you're the defensive stopper, or, you know, that's what Dean Smith puts you down as, you know you've got somebody as a good player. So he didn't get drafted out of university, I don't think. I'm pretty sure he didn't. But he went to tryouts. And Riley, Pat Riley, took a gamble on him because he worked so hard. He just wanted to work so hard and get to the top. And and the rest is history, isn't it? You got his time with the Lakers, um, not enough time. You know, if he'd stuck around, maybe he could have got some more teams to pick him up. You know, he, Steve had that ability just to, just to, like I said, be better than somebody else. So when when, when you're talking about Steve and, and the all-time uh, English British greats, if I was to sort of force you to pick, clearly you know a lot about sort of the history and the 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 timelines from all the way at the start to now. So if you were to put together like a all-time, you know, uh, greatest British English players of all time. Who would be in it, and why? Who who would be your sort of top picks? Yeah, thanks. <laughs> uh, I mean, you got to go for Deng, right? Lord Deng, top top of the tree, no doubt about it. Pops, I think their recent history, and and I think people remember the recent stuff more than the old stuff. So fair enough. But if you go back, you know, Steve's got to be in the top because. Uh, Carolina, uh, and if you even go back just before that, Martin Clark, you know, one of the players that's just not talked about much at all. Martin Clark, six foot eight, uh, another one could shoot the lights out, played four years at Boston College. Yeah, he, he had a great story come at the end of his career too when he um, got into a running with Gary Williams on the sideline. Uh, Do you know this story? No, no. Uh, so it's it's out there. You can find it somewhere in the internet. But he uh, got into a spat with Gary Williams. I think it was the final game against Georgetown, Boston, and Patrick Ewing's playing for Georgetown. Um, anyway, it, it got it blew up much more than it should have done. And and anyway, the uh, Martin came out and criticized Boston College for their educational policy surrounding uh, basketball players. And and that didn't go down too well. But Martin was graduating anyway, so he was on his way out. Got drafted, I think, by the Sixers. Very lucky of the draft back then in uh, 1984, maybe. Uh, and then headed back to England. And 
started his career with Kingston, but he was just a phenomenal player. If he'd played in the post-Bosman era, he would have made tons of money. I mean, he would have been possibly one of the one of the top 10, 15 European players around at that time, easily. Just a great, great player. Big body, could shoot the lights out, and uh, a good rebounder too. And, and a big reason why Kingston and... Uh, Kevin Cadle's success around that time, he had some good players. And he had Martin as an English player, Danny Davis and John Bontrager. Those three in themselves were just uh, formidable. Won a lot of titles. So, uh, in terms of your list of all-time greats, I'm going to keep I'm, push, I'm pushing you. That, right? I'm going to keep, yeah, I'm going to keep pushing you on it. Uh, who, who else would you throw in there? Amici would come into the next one. So, I think Amici has to be in that list, right? John Amici for what he did for British basketball. So, Amici, Dang, Pops... Steve, Steve Bucknell, and then Martin Clark. I'd throw Martin in there just for the fact that people don't, that people don't know how good he was and underestimate the value he brought to English basketball. And then when we're talking about all-time greats, one of the things that uh, jumped out to me on your um, CV that, that I had a look at before we, we chatted was um, the World University Games where you played against some, some all-time greats uh, yourself. Yeah. What are your memories of uh, going against the likes of Charles Barkley um, and Carmelo? Yeah, and it was so it was a practice game. So our coach Vic Ambler had, had connections with the uh, USA team. He'd been assistant coach at Washington, um, I think, under George Raveling. Uh, so he had connections, and he'd arranged this pre-tournament game against the USA. We only lost by 17, 83 to 66, um, but phenomenal. You know, Barkley shoots a shot. Charles Barkley shoots the shot on the foul line, and I think it was uh, Kenny Kocher. One of the players we had, who was a dual national on that team, forgot to box out. Or Barkley just got the rebound and didn't even come down with it and dunked it. <laughs> so he takes the shot, misses the shot, dunks his own rebound. I'm, I'm looking at this like, are you serious? And Barkley was only 6'5", right? He's 6'5", but just big. Just a huge, huge body. And uh, there were some good stories in that game. I remember taking the ball out of bounds. And I always tell this story to kids when I'm doing coaching. And Ed Pinkney was just right by me. And, and uh, Ed Pinkney played for Villanova. He won a championship with Villanova, played for the Boston Celtics many years. Anyway, he's walking backwards on defense. And the, de- and the uh, coach, Norm Stewart, jumps out of his chair. And this is right in front of me. And he says to Pinkney, son, we don't walk anywhere on this team. And within a blink of an eye, he starts jogging backwards. And I'm, I'm looking at this thinking, that is just magic, right? You've got these guys heading to the NBA, superstars in the college, and you just, you just flick, the, flick the switch, and he's just, just jumped into action. This military precision of, of what's expected at the very top level. You know, and uh, I always tell, that's my favorite phrase, you know, we don't walk anywhere. <laughs> you know, even when I'm walking around the school sometimes, I talk to the kids, you know, get the, you don't walk anywhere. Get there as quick as you can. But it's, it's a great phrase. What, what are some of the standout memories for you playing for um, your national team? You know, when, when you went to national team, it was um, it, there was no Americans on the team, right? So it, the responsibility then shifted. So if you played with two Americans, the, the responsibility of lot, the, a lot of what went on, the expectation was they were going to take a lot of responsibility on themselves. Now, the, the reason Crystal Palace was so good is because you had four or five English kids who could support Americans, who could on their day be as good as value. So you take Paul, Paul Stimson, you know, he, he could light a team up for 29, 30 easy. In, in, if, if an American was having a bad day, then you, get, you have these English players to, to fill the load. 
And a lot of clubs back then had two Americans, but the English players perhaps couldn't carry the load as well as the Crystal Palace team. You know, yeah. Jeremich, Dan Lloyd, Stimson, they could all do it. So when you went to national team, there was not that over-reliance on two Americans. So everybody had to step up. You know, you had the days at Palace where you had this 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 ability to actually turn in games and be the um, be the prime provider of points and et cetera, et cetera. It was an easy step up. So you could really adjust yourself to national team games and really take responsibility over it. it and for Paul, he found it seamless. You know, Paul really accepted that responsibility in terms of uh, being a, a scorer, a main scorer on the team, and perhaps and instead of being perhaps being the second or third scorer on the club level. And do, do you have standout memories of, of specific games or uh, or performances or, or anything that sort of comes to mind when you think about national team sort of duty? Yeah, I, I enjoyed everything, right? I, I, I had those games where I sat on the bench and I had those games where I played 30, 35 minutes. And, uh, um, you know, one year, I think, Dave Titmus was coaching. We played Turkey three times in a year, and we beat them twice. So you're talking about 1986, out of three. Um, that's not bad. And the third time was actually in Turkey. And uh, we beat them in Turkey in a Euro, Euro qualifier, I think it was, under Titmus. And by the end of the game, they were throwing coins on the floor <laughs> in, in, um, in protest that we were winning. You know, I remember Dave Gardner shooting free throws when the game was over and coins just raining. He was picking the coins up. You know, Dave's from up north. He needed the change, putting them in his pocket. But it, that, that was the first sign I'd seen of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, animosity from crowds um, towards, towards us. But, you know, Turkish basketball just went on, a, on an elliptical pathway upwards and British basketball necessarily didn't. Uh, which is another way of saying, okay, the, the game has lost its way. If we can beat a team back in 86, three times, two times in a year, I think it was. Anyway, it's all, it's, it's all water under the bridge now, but a lot of memories playing national team, that's for sure. Do you find it, Do you find that personally frustrating, you know, when kind of the, I think the general perception, I mean, probably it's the perception in England with a lot of younger players as well is that, you know, we suck, our national team is not very good. You know, we don't, we, we don't win anything. We don't do this. We don't do that. Um, and we've never been good. But actually, when you go back in the history books, there were times when, you know, we were competing uh, with, you know, the best teams in Europe um, and beating them at times. Uh, you know, there seems to be a whole chapter of history that's kind of like almost forgotten. Yeah, yeah, but you, I think you underestimate that this team right now. That there's, a, there's a this team right now can win. You know, national, te- the senior national team can win. All right, I, there's no make no bones about it. That team can win. You go down to the junior levels, the competition over the last, I'd say, five years has upped. Right, so we're playing on a level now where we perhaps belong at the A level division. You know, we can put teams on the floor that can compete, and when you can compete, you can win games. So I've got I've got a lot of optimism about what's going on in the game right now. I guess my level of pessimism is is in the organisation side of it, um, where you've got uh, you know how many coaches we had in the last three four coaches in the last three years, of of coach the senior team now. That's never going to be good. Um, I thought Mark Studel did a great job against Germany, uh, coming back and winning after the game. Was it Montenegro they played before? I think it was Montenegro, right? The game before when that was his first game. Um, there was there was mistakes made right through that team on that in that away game, but when they came to the home game, they rallied. 
they got themselves in a bit of a hole, but they rallied and won the game. And I thought it was just, that's a sign right there that you can win with this team. So, talking about your your issues with the organisation, you were on the Barcelona board, right, in, in 2015. Uh, I'd be interested in kind of hearing your experiences there, um, you know, how it was for you and kind of what, what happened. Yeah, I, 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 I love being, and that's where, I, that's where I want to end up, right? I want to end up with the administration. I want to find out, I want to put this game back on a track that everybody can be proud of. Not, you know, there's elements going on that really infighting perhaps that where, that, like the, take the great Britain players, right? The announcement before the Israel game uh, from the players. That, that, that showed a lack of uh, co- co- uh, cohesion within the, within the program. Um, and, and that was the result of a lot of things. I think we were, where were we? We might be together sometime when it was, it was we were in Argentina when it was breaking out, I think. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, we was in Argentina when that was when the, 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 the takeover yeah. happened, yeah. Yeah, and, and it was never good for us. Never good, right? It's never. Um, so behind the scenes, I think uh, unsettled, unsettled team, things with the players for sure. Um, my time with British English basketball was, was good. I enjoyed it. It gave me a good insight to it. I walked through the door and uh, Stuart Hallett took over and straight away there was, there was signs that, that England basketball was going to go bankrupt. Now in speaking to other directors, um, the money was there coming from Sport England and, it, and having that money from Sport England is so important for Basketball England. And it was always going to be there. It's just that Basketball England needed to jump through a few hoops to get that money um, in terms of policy and procedures. And they got the money and they're back on level footing now, which is good to see. Um, I think now the game, um, so I'll give you an instance right here, Basketball England, great, the Basketball, the British Federation should be doing more to promote what's going on online. You know, everybody's looking for online, um, input right now. And I'll give you a, a counterbalance, you know, Canada's setting up this, I think I passed it on to you. Canada's setting up this 10 day, 50, um, coaches online, doing um, doing uh, stuff about their programs, all Canadian, uh, some, in, some in the NBA, some uh, university coaches here. Uh, and that should be coming from Basketball England or should be coming from the Federation. So the national team coaches should be coordinating that sort of level of um, passing on their, their knowledge, their, um, their understanding, their philosophy of the game to other coaches. Um, but it's not. And, and, you know, I, I think uh, there is a, there's a group of people doing their own thing. They're finding little uh, avenues to get coaching uh, clinics in online, which is great. Just on a, a quick side note, how you obviously, for those people that don't know, you live in Canada. Um, how did that come about and why, why have you ended up there? Uh, yeah, so we live in a place called St. Catharines, which is just uh, an hour from Toronto and just south of Niagara Falls, so right on the border of America. Uh, my wife got a job out here at, um, at a prep school, high school. Um, at the same time, the school was starting up a prep basketball program, which means that we go out, we recruit kids, and we have a program that plays in the elite uh, league here in Ontario. My uh, kids playing Division One in the States right now that are Canadian, and 32 come from our league on top of the six that are in the NBA. So the league's producing a lot of good players. And we're part of that league. Uh, This will be our fifth year next year. Uh, We've got a good crop of kids coming in, mainly from the Toronto area. 
so we'll be very competitive next year, which is uh, which is our aim, obviously, to compete with the best in Canada. Um, so I'm the assistant basketball coach, head coach, Terry Upshaw, um, big time coach uh, in this area, uh, a lot of experience. Canada is one of those countries that in the last few years has seen a rapid rise of, of kind of like everything seems to have changed in terms of its direction and what it's doing and has suddenly become this, I guess, like a, a, a noted um, rising power in the basketball world. Um, you know, what, what, do you, what do you think uh, that is attributable and, uh, to and maybe what are the lessons that British basketball potentially could take from that? Because obviously it's, you know, it's the place that we want to get to. Yeah, there's a deep-rooted history for a start, right? So if you go back to the 80s, Canada was a powerhouse. They went to the 84 Olympics. Uh, they won that 83 World University Games. So they had players right then who could compete at the top level. That's back in the 80s. So now what happened, if you fast forward to 1998, they talk about this, um, the Vince Carter effect, right? So 1998, the draft, Carter goes number four, picked by... Uh, who was it? Sacramento, Golden State, maybe in Toronto, take the number three pick, Antoine Jameson. Well, they do a swap. So Raptors end up with Vince Carter. And they talk about the Vince Carter effect around the Toronto area in terms of mobilizing and rejuvenating a whole generation into playing basketball. And, you know, if you know Toronto, it's a big hockey place. They love their football, the American football. In the 22 years since Carter was drafted, you know, they were world champions last year, that great run with Nick Nurse as head coach, Kawhi Leonard. But that's the combination. So you've had the Vince Carter effect of the 90s and the early 2000s. And now you've got the the effect that Kawhi Leonard put on this team from last year. So you're looking next 20 years, it's going to get even crazier here. Um, the number of kids playing basketball right now is phenomenal. And add to that the deep-rooted history so everybody's an expert. You can you can have a conversation with everybody, and everybody knows everything about basketball here. So you've got to be you've got to have your wits about you when you talk about hoops. That's for sure. Do you think that if the UK had a once in a generation talent, you know, talking uh, sort of NBA superstar level, MVP level, uh, coming directly out of the UK, you know, maybe goes to college for four years and then, or well, wouldn't even go to college for four years, go to college one year. Uh, that could change things? Or do you think you have to have that infrastructure in place to be able to capitalise on it for them to have the growth off the back of it? Like, would the media even care? Because, I mean, you, you look, we essentially did have that on some level with Luol. Um, and and really, like, it, unfortunately, it didn't cut through in the way that you'd expect it to. No, and, and maybe that's the accessibility of Luol Deng to the media, right? If you look at the, uh, if you've got somebody that's accessible to all the media outlets in England, then he becomes a, a hero for everybody. But because he was in America and you get, you're getting a, uh, the games go out late at night, they're not great viewing because it's one o'clock in the morning to get it. So therefore, you've got to watch it as a rerun. It's not great media. You can't really sell it as well as you perhaps could if it was on home soil. So going back to your point, is that what it's going to take? I think the first, I think we've spoken about this before. You've got to get players into high-level high programs first, which means you, you've got to up the edge of where we're developing kids. So when they leave at 18 and 19, are they going to top-level programs? They're going to top 10 programs. They're going to top 20 programs. That's what we've got to get to first. Is it going to take one player to turn everything? No, you've got to get a whole – you've got to get nine, ten kids through through these big programs. And that means you have to really look at what we're doing at the grassroots level 
from 14 to 19 to say, what are we doing to make these kids the best they can be? We've got the bodies. We've got the players coming through. There's no doubt about it. You know, I see kids turning out for Great Britain that have uh, just got incredible talent, but maybe we're not extracting the talent enough. We're not putting them enough through enough practices per week, maybe. The number of hours they're getting on the court doing skill work, that has to be scrutinized. You know, one of the questions I ask you, at the, at the top level, who's who's uh, who's documenting how much, how many hours these kids are putting in each week? Every kid. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't think anyone is as far as far as I'm aware. You know, I mean, so and, and then another question is, who's actually following the progress of these kids when they go to the state? So you've got these kids at certain level, certain programs. What contact are we keeping with these kids? In terms of, okay, what are you doing every week to make yourself better? Not the team better, because your coach is going to tell you what you need to do to make the team better. But Great Britain needs you to do things to make you better for when you come back into play national team basketball. You're going to be benefiting the program. Um, you know, long time you see these kids, uh, you send them out to the States and you're in playing in opposition. That's no good to when you come back and play European ball. So that is something I think that the, the federation, the, but it's basketball England, GB, needs to get a hold of. You know, the constant contact with these kids to find out how they're developing their game. That's going to suit Great Britain when it comes back in, when they come back from the states. Do you think we need to? You know, there has been talk of kind of like resisting uh, the the kids wanting to go to America and trying to get into a, into a place where the UK game is strong enough or has enough options. Uh, to excite them and keep them here, but do you think actually, well, that's you know, realistically, are we ever going to get to a situation where you know kids can uh, get a free education, um, play in front of thousands a week, thousands of fans every single week, you know, be on TV, be a superstar like within their local community? Um, I think that's probably you know way, way, way off. So in that situation, is it a case of actually we just need to embrace them going to the states? They're going to be going to the states, but ensure that. Uh, you know, they're given the best advice and guidance on their way there, they make the best decisions for them, and then they're in a situation that when they do come back, um, they're able to contribute in a way that obviously helps the growth of basketball in this country. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a no-brainer, I guess, isn't it? You, you've just summed it up, you know, here you go. I, I think Mark Clark's analogy is best, right? When he was taking his daughter, Ella, which in, they want to do the number on you, right? They, so Mark said they, they, uh, they took the family to the library. All right, and, and Mark's saying, "Hang on, this is hang on, this is not the best place for athletes to be." All the you know, the, you won't find many athletes in the library. But the view, the view of the Pacific Ocean, was the reason they took them to the library. And Mark was just blown away by it. And and that's it. Well, you, okay, so you're going to say to a kid, "You're going to get free education in Long Beach State." There's the there's the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, what what do you want to do? It's a it's a no brainer, isn't it? And you you're going to be on TV. You're going to have people talked about you. You're going to have this, that, and the other. It's a tough. It's tough to say no, yeah. and uh, when they come knocking on the door, you know, you know, how about uh, the, the the kid, the kid from uh, Newcastle that went to Princeton? How are you going to turn down a Princeton education? That's a, that's a tough one. Yeah, you know, Princeton's one of the top schools in a, in the world. Um, I can't remember his name. Is it? It was it was Tosan. Uh, I, I can't even. I won't even try to yeah. pronounce his surname. Evbuan Evbuan or something like that. But yeah, to, yeah, Tosan. Um, yeah, I'm a commentator. I'm not allowed to butcher names. But you could, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, but you know, but what, what, what a great opportunity for the kid. And and that's what when we're so this school here is very academically based. And and when we go down and we uh, we talk about recruiting for kids, if we get a kid into an highly highly academic school, we're over the moon. 
and there's a big push from Canadian kids to go into high academic schools. And you look at the Harvard roster, Harvard University, right? Harvard's one of the biggest well-known names. It's like four kids from Canada on that team. And they chose Harvard because of the basketball, because the programs are stepping up and because of the education. Yeah. Yeah. So jumping back to, to, uh, your your career uh, making the transition from playing to coaching um, kind of yeah can you talk about the winding down of your of your playing days what made you decide to to retire from playing and then um, I think you were you were coaching straight away the next season right yeah we um, Thames Valley Tigers uh, Dave Tipmas took over Thames Valley Tigers sat down with Dave and uh, they offered you a contract, which was like half of what I was making the year before. So it was like, thanks, but no thanks. Um, so then I moved on to Kingston with Kevin Cadle. And, and Kevin was one of these coaches you always wanted to play for. Everybody wanted to play for him, right? Because he had this, this, this air about him. You know, I can't, you know, it's, you know, when you talk about missing people, you know, but British basketball misses Kevin Cadle for sure. You know, the influence he brought even to, your TV on Sky Sports with American football, right? People miss personalities, and Kevin was such a great personality for the game. You know, everybody that knew him, um, but what a great, you know, Paul Stimson talked so highly of him, a great motivator. Unfortunately, he didn't have a place for me on the, on, on the court, so I was sitting on the bench most of the time, and that's no problem because I enjoyed my time. But around about Christmas, Dan Lloyd comes up to me and said, listen, why don't you come and play for Hamill? Um for the rest of the season. So, and, and it was guaranteed playing time. So I could go there and play. Ironically, we play Kingston, the very second to last game. And they're on an unbeaten season. They're like 34-0 for the season. Or 30, whatever, 30-0, 31-0. And we play them at Hemel Hempstead. Luckily, they're coming back from a trip in Verona in a European game. The day off, right? So the Friday we're playing them. They're back late from the game because of some reason. And we played, and we only got six players. We got two Americans, me, Joel Moore, uh, and a couple of other kids. We beat those from Hemel, who were sitting eighth in the league out of nine. We at home, we beat Kingston, and um, so there was a bit of just, there was a bit of uh, yeah, I love that, you know. But you know, but Kevin was great. Kevin after after the game came straight up, shook my hand, and uh, congratulated me. But it was a, a strange situation of area. We beat the top team, ruined their unbeaten season. Um, the fact they were probably jet lagged and tired and knackered for playing the game in, in Italy the night before, or day, two days before. But it was priceless. And then that was it. That was the last time I played, really. And an opportunity came up to coach uh, Wear Rebels as player coach in Division One, And I took that on very well. I took a lot of what Kevin, Kevin espoused in terms of t- toughness in practices, Kevin was a big influence on me in terms of my coaching. And the end of that season, Division One, we came third, uh, knocked, knocked out of the playoffs early. We, we, we had no Americans, but we were third in a, in a league that had a lot of clubs had Americans. So we did very well. We had a lot of young English kids. Uh, Brian Balsa, uh, Dave Atwell was playing. They went on to play at Siena University, came back and played pro for Derby, I think, a, lot, a long time. Uh, and then I had approached from Ed Percival, who was the um, uh, GM and director at Thames Valley, and said, listen, what are you doing? I said, I told him what I was doing. And then I got a call about a week later saying, listen, why don't you come and interview for the coaches, Thames Valley? Uh, turned out that 
there'd been a bit of confusion with Dave Titmus and, and I think Andy Gill was coaching there. They had a good team and I took it straight away. Uh, you know, the chance to get into coaching that quickly with a good team was, was, was exactly what I wanted. And then you, uh, you ended up getting coach of the year in your first, in your first two seasons in the, in the, in the, in the, in the BBL, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we played our first season with uh, Thames Valley and we've got Nigel Lloyd. So Nigel Lloyd is another superstar in, in terms of his contribution to British basketball. It's just an unbelievably great player. You know, he could break you down one-on-one. Uh, you couldn't guard him very well. Um, there was an element that Nigel be, could be criticized for not working as hard as he could do. Uh, and that was one thing we, we set out in practice. We were going to work hard. Um, that was one thing I learned from Danny, from Kevin, from Jimmy, all these coaches that played underneath. Um, the, the ability to work hard was always going to be number one in a way a practice was held. And, and, and we got the best out of players. And, and Nigel had a great season. Um, but he wasn't going to get MVP. And, and I think the MV and we didn't win the league, you see. So Worthing won the league. And Nigel didn't get MVP, and it was between him and Peter, maybe Colin or Allen, I think. So I think the league felt that if if um, Worthing were going to get the MVP as a player, <laughs> then Thames Valley should get the MVP as a coach because, <laughs> because he didn't win the league, you see. So uh, we won the trophy. Uh, we got knocked out the, the cup in the semifinals, uh, but it was great. Then the following year, we won the league. And, of course, the league had no choice but to give me coach of the year again. <laughs> So in some ways, I, I, I love the accolade. It's still nobody's going to take it away. But I, I, you know, I think sometimes, you know, there was a, it was a little bit of luck involved too. Have you been, um, have you been watching the, uh, you know, the BBL was doing a bunch of throwback games uh, that were broadcasting every Friday night on their YouTube channel, and I, I tuned into a couple of them, and I did see you on the sidelines uh, doing your thing uh, with Thames Valley in one of them. I can't remember what game that was, um, but have you been look, watching back on them and like? Well, see, I got, I got sent this clip, right? Me and the timeout. Um, we were playing Sheffield in the trophy, and um, Sheffield was up and coming. Jimmy Brandon was coaching. They had Chris Finch was a player, Todd Cawthorn, and they had Roger Huggins. Now, Huggins was one of these players that we couldn't necessarily match up with, right? He played the four position, very agile, very quick. And my two bigs were, were Tony Holly and Neville Austin. So that game, I had to put Steve Bucknell on him. So Steve had to play him. Steve had to come down a position and got a four-man. Well, Steve was no problem, but that then took away from perhaps his offensive um, prowess, and Steve was our top scorer. Anyway, I guess Steve must have been taking some a lot of shots in that game because somebody comes over to me during the game, and it must have been one of the veteran players that they respected and said, listen, you need to talk to Steve and tell him to stop shooting as much. And when I get that message, I've got a choice, right? I either ignore it or I, I deal with it. With it. it comes from one of the senior players. I got to deal with it. So at the timeout, I'm saying, for some reason, I'm, you know, I got to tell Steve, you, know, you got to stop taking bad shots. You know, that was a bad shot you took. I mean, I'm calling timeout because of it. Anyway, so I, by going after sort of semi going after Steve in that timeout, I knew he was going to go out that timeout pissed off. All right. And as long as he wasn't on the bench pissed off, he was on the court pissed off. I knew he was going to take it out in the opposition. And sure enough, he goes out as a great game and we win, uh, I think we win by three points in the end, but it, it wasn't my, that wasn't my style, right? My style wasn't really to pick on players, especially the senior players and call them out, but it needed to be because, because I was being called out as a leader 
to take care of business. And and fair enough, we had to do it. Um, but it was looking back, I think, did I do that? That doesn't sound like me. Anyway, yeah. So after the after the um, Thames Valley, you ended up uh, with London Towers and assistant for a few years, right? What were your memories of London Towers at that time? I feel like of all the teams that have uh, been in the BBL, the Towers maybe it's my generation or whatever kind of have this air about them as a franchise. Maybe it was the connection with martial arts or, or whatever it is. I don't know, but like kind of yeah. What was your time like at London Towers and kind of um, what your, yeah, so- your your memories from there gone? It was post, so I'm just going to get rid of this phone call. Um, uh, it was post uh, Kevin. So Kevin had um, Kevin had finished his time with the Towers. Now, you imagine that Towers were taking full reins. Um, so I had five years with the Tigers as head coach. The first three were successful. The second two, I was struggling to really put a team on the floor that was going to compete for medals, right? We were, I think we were eighth in the league and then, uh, yeah, we maybe we were down the, the seven or eight in the league two years running. And then I took a year out. And then I went, the year I went to the Towers was Kevin's last year. So it was the end of Kevin's. And they brought in Lino Fratin from Italy. Um, and Lino, um, I, don't know how they, I don't know how they got hold of Lino, but Lino came in um, and he, he opened my eyes to a lot of good things too in terms of coaching philosophy, coaching um uh, different ways of playing that a lot of ways of playing the pick and roll, which I hadn't seen before, um, which I thought were new. And that was European based. Lino had cut his teeth with Bologna under Alberto Bucci, the head coach there. He was assistant to Bucci. Um, so he's very experienced. And and that was a fun year. So he brought that was the year when uh, Towers had we had four Americans. I'm trying to think of the English players we had then. We had Martin Henlon. Uh, Roger Duhaney was on that team. And we ended up winning the trophy and, and we ended up getting to Wembley and winning Wembley too. I think we beat uh, Thames Valley in the final. We beat Sheffield in the semi-final. Some great games. I mean, Lino could coach a team. That's for sure. It was, uh, it, it was a strong team. And that was the pair. And we, that's right. We had a, I did have some influence that year because we had Danny Lewis on the team and Danny Lewis, another phenomenal player that put a lot of into English basketball and, and his contribution cannot be uh, underestimated. But at Christmas, they were, they were, they want, they needed to ch- make a change. And my view was to go with a guard. So we had a two guard lineup. Um, and Lino was leaning towards getting another big guy. And I'm thinking, well, look at all the successful teams above us in the league that are doing well. And they're all two guard based. So you have a one guard and a two guard. Um, and we had Dwayne Morton who has played NBA, um, come out of University of Louisville, but he wasn't really a, in comes this guy, Randy Duck. And if, if you remember Randy, I mean, he's got the greatest name in basketball history, Randy Duck. Um, but what a great player. And him and Danny Lewis combined together were just phenomenal. They were unbelievable. What a great tandem that was for London Towers that year. And, and sure enough, we get on a roll the end of the season. Uh, we blew through Newcastle in the playoffs. We played Sheffield in the semis and Sheffield will stack too. And then we get Thames Valley, uh, who coached my my old assistant, Paul James. So I, there was a bit of me that wanted to win that a lot. Very, you know, quite, uh, there was a lot of me that, yeah, I wanted to win that game a big time. And we won. And that was a successful year. And then I did another year as assistant with another coach the following year, Ron Abaglen, who was an American coach coming out of Weber State. That was probably a mistake for the Towers, I think, because you're taking an American college coach and expecting him to fit into European 
culture, basketball culture straight away. Ron struggled in terms of really grasping what was needed at the European level. Why do you think, uh, you know, most recently, obviously, we've seen the London City Royals go bust. You know, London Lions are still standing. But there's been a lot of attempts to make a London franchise work. And it's always been a difficult thing to have sort of real long-term sustainability viability why do you think london has been so difficult to make work for a professional basketball franchise yeah and i guess if you look at the franchises that are successful and you like the leicesters your newcastles um you probably throw a few more at me than that uh, manchester <laughs> over the years um even go down to Worthing, right? Worthing, what a great fan base they have down there. And and you talk to Vince. Vince struggles with a fan base that's going to come back time and time again. Um, and maybe London's that type of place where the, the true fan base is so uh, that it truly exists like it does in places like Leicester, Worthing. Um, maybe that's it. And Crystal Palace has never been a great place to develop a fan base. You know, if you think about the sports center there, it takes you, you need a taxi just to get to the sports center. But once you get off out of your own taxi, you yeah, know, it's, yeah. it's almost impossible to get there. And late at night coming out of games, it's, it's in, it's in hospitable in terms of the walk you need to get to the bus or the train. Yeah. Do not, you think, do you think the towers had a true fan base that was returning every single week? Or do you think it was new guys looking for a, you know, looking for a night out or whatever? Well, back in the day, you know, Rick Taylor was the master of uh, marketing, right? Rick used to bus kids in, bus, bus. He would bus um, fans in and bus them home again. So he'd worked out that it, it was a bad place to get to in terms, if you were expecting people to get there on their own volition, it wasn't a great place. You know, you couldn't really walk to the place. And like I said, public transport wasn't great to Crystal Palace. So he would bus kids in, school trips in all the time. Um, and he was building up a, a fairly good franchise there. I mean, the Royals, their best games were, were played when the Lithuanians were playing for them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, the blood. I mean, how bizarre is that? Your best following, your best fan base is when you had two foreigners playing. Yeah, of course. So after after Towers, where, where what happened to you after that? Where did you end up? I haven't got a clue, actually. I think I just took a hiatus from um, coaching. Well, you know what? I think... It, commentating took over more and more. Right, okay. So in 2004, um, by chance, I got offered to do some work for Eurosport for the 2004 Olympics. Um, Eurosport used Roy Birch as their main go-to for basketball commentating. And Roy was uh, taking a better job in France doing the Olympics from uh, remotely from Eurosport as an analyst for the uh, Olympics in Athens, remotely. Uh, did about six games. Yeah, I loved it. Didn't hear back from Eurosport for another year. And then all of a sudden, Eurosport's got this gig with uh, the EuroCup. And that started like a 10-year, um, uh, 10 years of commentating with Eurosport in the EuroCup, which was a lot of fun. It was me, Roy, Roy Birch, Mark Clark and Martin Henlon. Danny Routledge was involved. Uh, Liam Canney did a few games. But that started it off right then. And, and that was the same time that FIBA was then getting to do um, a lot of online work. So remote work with FIBA, uh, uh, at venue work with FIBA in the summertime, and and it's not looked back since. So here we're 2020, I was in uh, Serbia doing the Olympic qualifying with following the Great Britain team. 
What have been some of your highlights uh, commentating? Like, are there particular games that stand out that you just think you look back and you just think, oh, it was amazing to have you know been had a chance to be there and and, and call it. I was never there for the great, the big ones in Europe or the world. I think I got to um, uh, a European last 16, maybe, with uh, Liam Canning. We did the French team. But some of the big ones, we're down to the, we went down to the Philippines twice. We did the Asia Cup down in the Philippines. And to be in a gym in the Philippines when there's 21,000, 22,000 people there to watch the game is just phenomenal, unreal. Uh, and their following of the game is just uh, second to none. I mean, it's, yeah, that was pretty spectacular. And then going down the, the Olympic qualifying tour, when France were there, Canada were there, the Philippines were there, that and New Zealand was there. That was pretty special too, because I knew I was going to Canada right then. And that made me, that helped me link in with some guys with the Canadian national team that uh, I've gone on to be uh, good, good friends and acquaintances since. One of the, just jumping around before we, we sort of come to it, I'm aware of time here as well, uh, but there was a few things I definitely wanted to ask about. One of them was the WICB. Um, now, you know, for those that don't know, can you kind of give us the background of like what it was and, and then some of your favourite memories uh, from, from that tournament? So the WICB stands for the World Invitational Club Basketball, Championship Basketball, maybe? I don't know. It's just an acronym to me, but it's <laughs> So David Last and Terry Doty had this idea. I guess it was Terry and David. And they got a sponsorship with Philips the early years. And they decided to just bring teams from Europe around about Christmas time. Well, the world, really. Because we had Dale from Australia, America. Uh, and they, they would bring them over and just play this tournament. So it started off as an 18 tournament, I believe. And, and that's quite a funny story, too. Because when I was under, we were under 19 at Crystal Palace. And, and one December we were playing the Australian national team. So we're playing these teams and, and I love to get in people's faces, right? So there I'm a 19 year old, we're playing against the Australian national team. So first four or five minutes, I'm going to the basket, some kid fouls me and straight away I'm up in his face. You know, I'm just, you know, it just it's just the way I worked, right? It's just, it's just <laughs> pump me up, pump the rest of the team. But anyway, we lose to these guys about 30, 40 in the end. Um, but anyway, this team, um, then went into the senior men's team at the WICB, the Phillips, the first Phillips tournament. And they're in this, they're in this tournament in 1979. And uh, we were Cinzano Crystal Palace back then. And the Milan team. There. And this is the epic game that BBC covered. Whether they've still got the archive footage of it, I doubt it because uh, so long ago, 1979. But Larry Dassey going for 40 points against Cinzano Milan. It was just phenomenal. And uh, Milan had this big Danish-Canadian called Lars Hansen who played the NBA. They had Mike D'Antoni, who's now the, uh, the Houston Rockets coach, was their point guard. And this host of uh, Italian international, Dino Menegin, was a big-time international player. But Larry was this American out of Kansas State. I think it was his first or second, maybe his first year there. And he just went off. Uh, he must have had three or four dunks the second half that were just out of this world. And uh, Crystal Palace ended up winning the tournament, beating Milan in the final. It was just packed. The, the gym was, at Crystal Palace was jam-packed. There must have been 3,000 people there. Inviting the big names, Maccabi Tel Aviv. North Carolina comes over twice. You know, my favorite story about, you know, you, when your players complain about game time, right, or court time, minutes on the court. I, say, I always tell them the story of playing Crystal Palace, playing North Carolina in the third and fourth playoff. 
of the WICB and 10 seconds to no 11 seconds to go. Coach says, Mickey, get out there. And I'm sprinting to the bench. I'm sprinting to get the substitution. Get, get me on the floor. And my story is I run up once, run up back again, game over, shake hands, get in the change room. And that was it. North Carolina, 11 seconds. But you know what? Don't talk to me about not playing when 11 seconds is so valuable at age 19 years of age. You know, that team had James Worthy on the team, Jimmy Black, uh, Rich Yonaker, uh, Kevin Ver, uh, Virgil played, John Virgil played, Michael Corrin played on that team. All these guys ended up in the NBA. Um, it was just a phenomenal experience to get on the court against It didn't touch the ball, didn't break a sweat. But, you know, it was just 11 seconds that you always remember. Okay, so some uh, quick-fire questions to, to, to wrap up. Um, your best, the the player that you believe is the best junior player that you've seen uh, in England? Yeah, I saw Lord Deng um, at 15 in a Crystal Palace tournament. I, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't even know why I was there watching, but I was there. And, and, and I watched a video of Jimmy Rogers, uh, late Jimmy Rogers, another great servant of British basketball, right? And he was talking about Deng. And, and Lord Deng was known as Mike Deng back then. Yeah. And of course, I'm looking at this game and it's England under 16s playing. And I'm asking a friend of mine, who's that kid out there? And oh, it's Mike Deng. He's it, just a phenomenal player, right? Just a phenomenal player. And, but Steve was on that level too. Butler was on that level. Steve had some great performances at the junior level. Nobody could stop Steve back in the day. You know, it didn't matter where you were from. Your favorite memory from your playing days? I uh, win in 87. We won the, we won the Wembley Championships as Brunel and Crystal Palace. Uh, we had uh, two great Americans, Dale Roberts and Brian Kellebrew, uh, Julio Politi, the Argentinian, um, who's a, you know, Julio's got a great life story too. You know, he, he fled the police uh, during the, uh, the Argentinian junta when people went missing. He, he, he had this story that the police were looking for him. And when the police were looking for you, you didn't know where you're going to end up. You know, a lot of people went missing from the police. So he fled the country with his girlfriend who was with the, uh, with the embassy. Ended up in England. And Julio was a phenomenal player, great shooter. A lot of guys in that team. that We made the final. We beat Portsmouth in the semi. That was a shock. And then we beat Kingston with their... I mean, these, this, this tournament, this final four was loaded. Manchester United was the other team in the tournament. They were loaded. Um, and Portsmouth, we beat them, and they just had uh, they had draft picks coming out of draft picks. They had phenomenal. So winning that tournament was the the highlight of playing for sure. And then your favorite memory coaching? Uh, Thames Valley. You know, we we won three league trophies in a row. Um, we won the league the second year. Um, yeah, you know, every every moment coaching is great. You know. You know, even mo- even coaching now, the, the moments are not winning stuff. Winning doesn't really matter to you, right? It's how much the players you have are progressing. Are they progressing as humans, are they, as, as individuals, as human beings? Are they progressing as players? Are you putting them in a place where they can they can be successful at the next level? The, to me, that's that's so important these days. The uh, most impressive individual performance that you've witnessed. Yeah. <laughs> Um, many of them, many of them, but one of the, one of the real remarkable ones I talk about, and I always talk to players about it, you know, my young son Cam and talk about him all the time was a guy called Nick Gallus. And I remember you were going to talk to Paul about Gallus. Gallus was probably 
one of the following all Altenburg was probably the best point guard Gallus was probably the best off guard and Gallus um, we were playing Greece under Dave Titmus in 1986 87 something like that and um, no it must be late 88 and uh, so I didn't get selected for the game made the trip missed the, missed the cut for the 10 so it's me and somebody else so I'm watching Greece warm up in the outside the gym right there's a little sort of semi gym outside and they're just doing laps and Nick Gallus is doing laps is doing a warm up before the warm up so the warm up is the 20 minutes on court before a game right but Nick Gallus has run a mile in the in on this little gym back and forward before he even goes out for the warm up and then in the game he hits 44 points against England right it just it just t- torches us for 44 points at one point we're in the zone and they throw an alley oop for Gallus Gallus is 5 foot 11 6 foot at a pinch, right? They throw an alley oop for him, back door, and I just had this vision of Mike Spade, who I think was our a big guy in the middle of the zone, just watching this ball sail over his head for the diminutive uh, Nick Gallus to go and score, and and Gallus would put fifty points on anybody. He was just a premier performer, and I remember having a conversation in the hotel afterwards about him being one of the top players outside the NBA, and that was always a emotive argument for some of the guys on our team. The best player that you've ever coached. Uh, Steve. Steve challenges every coach, all right? Steve challenges every coach because he just wants to win full stop. And he's demanding you to put the team in a place of winning. So, you know, you had to be on your top notch. And, you know, and I remember in practice, he'd always put Steve with, you wouldn't put him with the stronger, you always put him with the weaker players. And he'd complain now and again. Okay, that's, you know, you got to deal with it. You know, get on with it. Just uh, prove that you're the best player here by making this team win. But yeah, by, by by far, he was probably the, the best player I coached in, in terms of making me a better person, a better coach too. And then uh, this one might be a bit more challenging, but the greatest uh, sort of untold story in British basketball, underrated story that people just don't know about uh, that needs to be told. Holy cow, where'd that come from? Um, the great, oh yeah, I've got it for you. I love this story. So I'm coaching the Tigers, and Steve's on the team. So it's my third year coaching with the Tigers. And Thames Valley had a Division Three team. Um, and everybody kept telling me, because Paul James coached that team, player coach, he just coached that team. And he said, Mick, you've got to take a look at this kid. His name's Mike. Um, and he's just dunking everything. Uh, and eventually, I say, okay, let's take a look. He's 19 years of age, and we've got a good team. So I said, bring him along to practice. So we're at Yately. I don't know whether you know where Yately is. I lived in Yately. Yately's on the border of Surrey and Hampshire, a little sleepy little village. They've got a, a high school in there, and we used to train there on a Friday night. Terrible gym. Anyway, I said, bring him along to practice on a Friday night. It'll be a low-key practice because we've got a game the next day. But anyway, we can work him out. Anyway, this kid turns up. He's about six foot nine. And I said, go and get changed. And out he comes. He's wearing plimsolls, right? Not even wearing basketball sneaks. And he's wearing dress socks, gray socks. I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be interesting. Anyway, the kid goes out, out there and just perform. He's got low-level skill acquisition, but he can jump. He does three steps. He's dunked it on the rim. And my 6'11 center never lost him. He's going at him in practice in terms of, in terms of um, challenging him. So I'm thinking, this is, okay, this is good. We could, you're going to come to practice. Anyway, this is the era where you've got two, uh, two foreign spots on your team. That's it. Every English plays English. Anyway, I find out after practice, he doesn't have a British passport. Okay, son, I can't, I can't, I can't uh, get you on the team. 
But if you want to come down and work out, please feel free. Anyway, this kid's a public transport kid, and getting to Yately is not the easiest thing. So that was the last I saw of him. I get a phone call about three months later from the University of Pacific, and they say, we've had this interest from this kid. What do you think he's like? I said, listen, this kid is, as far as talent-wise, he's off the roof, right? He jumps, he's big, he's 6'9", 6'10", and he's athletic, but he's got no skill. He probably won't play for you. I only got to take him a look at him. Anyway, story rolls on. Yeah, he gets to his third year at University of Pacific, his fourth year at the University of Pacific. Anyway, he's the first round draft pick of the Los Angeles Clippers in 1998. It was Mike Aloha Candy. So that is the Candyman story. Unbelievable. And, and it is. And I, and, and I get ribbed about this because I told the story to Kevin Cadle about, you know, how the University of Pacific come, rings me up and I said, this kid won't, won't play in two years. And in four years, the, the first round draft pick. And uh, yeah. So my eye of spotting talent maybe is not that good. <laughs> but he was, it was a good story. Yately Jim, there you go. Amazing. That's a perfect place to leave it. Um, thank you so much. Much appreciated. That was, that was awesome. Uh, sorry about the internet connection. I'm hoping uh, I'm going to yeah. get that fixed because that is a massive, massive problem. But yeah, I no, really appreciate it. It was super interesting. Some great stories there. And uh, hopefully we will speak again soon. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Take care, Steve. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.